You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. Hey, guess who's here with me in the Grotto Pod today? She's back, ladies and gentlemen. All right, and both my legs work. Bridget Quinn, author, ambulatory author, <laughs> last. back from her secret lair where she. I was, was on crutches for a week. You were on crutches at your secret lair. Yeah. Oh, that must have sucked. No way, it was great because a no water. I just, no. Oh, I had water. It was my no husband mobility. who didn't have it. <laughs> it worked out for me. But it's perfect because I just hobbled from the desk to the ref- to the yeah refrigerator to yeah. the kitchen and back again. It was actually the easiest place to be on crutches. It was kind of like misery then, right? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm yeah, just, that's I was, true. I went to a costume party over the weekend that was a Stephen King theme. That's a great idea. Maybe. I was a group. It turned out person. to be better than I thought. Actually, at first I thought, not a good theme because everyone's basically going to show up dressed as a person, right? Was there tons of carries? There were two. Mother yeah. daughter, I think. Okay, that's yeah. disturbing. It was good. Um, we, of course, what went. Were you? I was Jack Torrance. Okay, that's I have to show you a picture of yeah, my I wife like as that. Wendy Torrance because you perfect. can imagine yeah. she's tall and thin. It's perfect. And has, can, can fashion a messy brown ponytail. Uh, funny enough, when I, for some reason, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, people always told me I looked like Shelley Duvall, and then they would immediately follow it with. She's a very striking woman. Is, I was going to say, is that a, is that a compliment? <laughs> no, it's not a compliment. She was a model, you know. I know, but I don't know she how. She was just now. She is super thin. That's the only lady. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's crazy. Uh, the hosts came as Christine the car. Oh. And uh, the guy who drives Christine, whose mm-hmm. name, Arnie, I think. I'm not a big Stephen King guy. I know me either. I was afraid to say that to you. So yeah, I've actually I only read seen, on writing. <laughs> I read it, well, when I first started. The Misery of the Movie's fantastic. I have never seen it. Um, it's so good. But I started, I, last night I came home and Christine was on. And mm-hmm. guess who plays the girlfriend in it? Uh, our imagine. friend. Oh, we have a friend? Caroline Paul's sister. Oh, no way. So Are I thought, you serious? Wow, I have Alexandra Paul. Connections to the no movie. No way. Christine. And speaking of San Francisco writers, grotto legends like Caroline Paul. Oh, for sure. Our guest today. That was an awesome segue. Thank you. I do. I do. I try hard. You're good. Our guest today is. Grotto co-founder. Oh my God, Ethan OG. Waters. OG, Ethan Waters. He of the level-headed Twitter feed. He is of, it level-headed? I think it's very level-headed. He of the landmark 2003 book, Urban Tribes, Our Friends, the New Family. You know, we're not going to talk about that much, but I do have a couple questions. He, that was a very timely book. It was, and I'm curious if what his thoughts are and how it's aged. Is it still a You phenomenon? know what I'm curious about? Hmm. Uh, because you could see what we're going to talk about being a book. Mm-hmm. How do you decide if something's a book or an article? Excellent, excellent. Ethan's second book was Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche, 2010. He writes a lot about mental health, mm-hmm. psychiatry, mental issues. Uh, what he's here to talk about today, however, is a... Also kind of mental health, honestly. It is. We'll maybe try to make those connections. Um, He just published a story in Texas Monthly and Epic Magazine called The Love Story That Upended the Texas Prison System about a prisoner uh, in Texas in the 1960s and the lawyer who – and you know, it's interesting that they call it a love story because I felt like the love story part really wasn't – the That's meat. the hook. It's That's the, the hook, hook, but it's not the meat of the story. No, I mean it is. It's you could see how, especially at the time, it was the purient interest angle mm-hmm. that this this lawyer, she's a woman lawyer, which woman is lawyer. unusual at the right, time, right? And much older than him, right? So you could see the titillation mm-hmm. factor. I can that. imagine at the time when he yeah. got out and they got married pretty soon after yeah. that, that it was pretty like, hmm, what's going on here? But even though you know. The prison system was, of course, insanely corrupt and bad, and bad things happened. Mm-hmm. To read it in a detailed way is pretty shocking. It is pretty shocking, and and you know, I'm I'm kind of a uh, I'm not quick to condemn p- people in authority. I'm not as quick to condemn mm-hmm. people in authority as others. Mm-hmm. I would always think, oh well, they got their reasons, you know. But in this hard case, job and yeah. it was hard. <laughs> To justify oh, yeah. what they bad. were doing. But it was also just like institutionalized generation after generation of just brutality. Right. And they had continued to tell themselves, well, we have to do it this way. Right. This is the only or way to do it. Or there'll be an uprising. Right. It's the only way to do it. If you really want this in control, just listen to us. So, and you know, it's a story of hope and triumph. 
but also reality. Reality, and ultimately, you know, it's it's a lot of sadness and loss as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's like life, man. It's like life, and oh. it's probably like the under undertaking the task of writing, however many words story. I don't know how many words it is. I have to ask him. If you look on long reads, it says it takes sixty six minutes to read. Oh, that's such a smart thing to do, to look at that. Yeah, but I I think they have the word count, too, but I didn't write that down because, as you know, I'm into word counts. 66 minutes to read. It actually, I think, takes longer than that. If you really want to digest it. Yeah, and um, so it's almost like getting a free book. It is like getting a free book. But it's satisfyingly not too long. So we want to find out, too. I think you already said that. You know, why yeah. Why a big old article and not a little book? Right. Or, you, I mean, because you could see how you could explode this out into being a book easily about right. social and justice, about the penal system. And, you know, and sometimes when someone, at least in the past, um, when someone wrote a sizable article like this, right. like, for example, John Krakow wrote Into right. Thin Air for Outside Magazine. It became right. a book. Right. But I think the whole paradigm here is not it becomes a book. But also the reason for that was that there was no internet then, mm. right? So the word count was really limited. True. And now when you could have these really big stories that are digital, why would you need a book? It's a good question. It's just a question. I want to. We're going to find out, that. and I'm really interested in, you know, when Ethan published this, uh, he changed his profile picture everywhere to be a picture picture of him sardonically with his arm resting on piles and piles of research. Okay, I have a bone to pick about this. Do you know about this? No. So right behind Ethan's head is my book, ha! but they airbrushed out the title. <laughs> oh yeah, you got That may freak him out, but you go ahead and bring that. Oh, up. I did. I brought it up online. <laughs> Oh, okay. Good, good move. On social media. Good move. But um, it's actually a great picture because it also, uh, I think the piece took him over two years to write. Yeah, two years. God. Two years of writing a magazine article. So, hey, why why, why are we talking to each other? We, we don't can need have him. To. Let's we go get him, to. and okay. uh, this will be good for you guys. Okay. Listen up. We're back. Ethan Waters, welcome to the Grotto Pod. You are the first to bring kombucha into the Grotto Pod. Oh, thanks, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. In the the palace that you built. Yeah, oh, I did yeah. have something to do. I put up uh, my son and I. We have these foam things that that absorb the sound. And we it's came in one fabulous. afternoon and we put up these foam things. Toby was really into it. I didn't even. I didn't even think of that, that you that you built this. What was the yeah. intention when you first built it? For you guys to do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> or somebody else to do a podcast. And here we are, there celebrating of, you and your work right now. There were a lot of radio people around here. I figured they could do some radio. Maybe, I thought, um, just reading your own stuff, maybe people would be... Mm-hmm. I've done that. Yeah, so I thought it would be a multi-purpose thing. I feel like the grottos just scratched the surface of what they could do having their own recording studio. I think so, too. I've always kind of wanted to dedicate a whole room to, like, like video and recording equipment. It would be such and, a good idea. Yeah. Let's we get have, on that. We have such potential. We have, in many ways, we have untapped potential. Uh, I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. The problem years. is that we have, like, 150 chiefs or whatever the phrase is. Yeah. Writers aren't well, known for... Working well, all together, to, to pulling pair, in the same direction. <laughs> to paraphrase what they often say about my people, oh, we have a hundred people and two hundred opinions. Oh yeah, it's probably a little like that. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little like hurting. And there is a reason that some people are right. freelance writers that they just did not work <laughs> don't out. work well with others. And the, the structure of the grotto is individualized enough that people can ma- maintain here and be accepted, and you don't have to work with them. Yeah. Um, True. Sometimes you have to be beaten down by their emails about <laughs> having left dishes in the <laughs> kitchen. But you just suck it up and I'm just saying another email. Keep going. Exactly. I'm just saying if I could walk around a corner and there would be Chris Cook on an elliptical, you dig it. I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, as someone who was fairly new said to me one day, um, "I just there's so many emails," and I was like, "Why don't you just delete them? I don't understand." <laughs> yeah, I just ignore a lot of them. <laughs> I don't. What? Are you reading those? I get overwhelmed with them. (laughs) Everyone must say congratulations. Enough about the grotto. Let's talk about this amazing story. Oh, my God. Yeah. And speaking about freelance writers, we have so many questions about this story. And I think maybe we should just start it at, at its inception. First, can we have Ethan sort of give us the elevator pitch, yeah, good idea. what it is? Uh, I started to do it in the intro and realized it would just be better for you to say, what is the story about? 
All right, so this story is uh, was published in the Texas Monthly in collaboration with Epic Magazine, which I can explain a little bit more about later yes, on. Yes, I'd like to. It's 17,000 words long. It is about a... Uh, it's, a, it's at its heart a love story. There's a Texas prisoner in 1968. And we meet him in 1968. He's been in jail for five years at that point. His name is Fred Cruz. He's in for burglary. He is a tremendously smart but kind of rebellious guy who begins to, once he gets to jail and is away from drugs and alcohol, begins to really deepen himself and intellectually and spiritually becomes a Buddhist, becomes, starts to study law, begins to file court cases uh, to try to address some of the constitutional rights prisoners are not getting. Because at that time, you know the 13th Amendment uh, abolished slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Except it, if you're a prisoner. Right. Right. Well, it's so interesting it, that you do bring that up, that, that all they basically did in that region was switch the yeah. workers from slaves to prisoners. And all yeah. those, Same all production. Those, yeah. yeah, all uh, 11, I think, uh, of those... Um, Units they had at the Texas Department of Correction. They were all former plantations. So Fred Cruz is one of our main characters. And then uh, there's a woman named Frances Chile who comes down from the Northeast. She raises five kids. I mean, her story is incredible. Right. She was was trained as a lawyer, one of the first women to graduate uh, Columbia Law School. She Surprise, can't get a job. Can't get a job in Darien, Connecticut. And raises five kids, gets them all out of the house safely, and decides, like, I'm going to join the civil rights movement. Does a fellowship where she's trained in poverty law. And this is a, this is a Johnson initiative where they send mm-hmm. all these poverty lawyers out all over the country. She was sent to Austin, Texas, where she gets a letter from Fred Cruz. And Fred Cruz says, hey, I saw an article in the paper about you coming to town. Would you like to come talk to me? And they begin this partnership that goes over, well, um, you know, a dozen years at least, but initially they began to sort of challenge the Department of Corrections on issues that are really fundamental to prisoners having any chance of getting rights, primarily mm-hmm. whether they can even share legal advice with each other, whether they can have but access to a lawyer. that astonished me. Right. Well, they're not allowed to talk to each other right. about whether, certain topics. Right. Whether they can read the Constitution mm-hmm. of the United States of America, like really fundamental things, yeah. and the, the use of solitary for punishment for those things and how arbitrary that was. Mm-hmm. And they just get both of them for the first four years of their uh, partnership just get brutalized. He gets completely abused in prison. She gets chased out of four different jobs in Texas, uh, almost run out of the state. And then amazingly, they begin to win their, 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 the, the appeals of these cases. One goes to the Supreme Court. Um, they win a major. Should I give all the spoilers? Again? No, I don't no, think no, you no, should. No, 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 don't give all the spoilers. Yeah, I don't think you should give it all uh, away. That's anyway, the basic. Critically, yeah. during this time, and it's very hard to see in their letters because their letters were all going back and forth through the prison censor system, but they begin to get very fond of each other. And when he gets out of jail, I will tell you this one thing, they do uh, this really critical moment in the story where everything's on the line for her in a court case where she's accused of uh, fomenting re- revolt in the right. I mean, prison it's, system. It's insane. They get, they get married. And maybe I'll just leave it there because the, the ending is even more dramatic than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but it's... A, uh, I mean, I think one of the most um, fascinating parts of the story is that if you were to hear the outlines of that in, in real time, you'd just think, he's a crank, she's deluded... Like, who would fall in love with a prisoner who's your client? Like, I mean, he's well, he had a, a nut. He, but they're these earnest, sweet people. Mm-hmm. Well, he, I mean, he had a beautiful mind, though. He she did. could see that and Absolutely. Talking to him Absolutely. Writings, he's right? not a crank at all. Absolutely. He's, and, was, and an intellectual. He was, tr- you, know, he was a, you know, I have all his prison diaries, of course. So I, I feel wow. like I know him really well. But he was incredibly studious, very soft spoken, but a man with just like the. Just a will of steel behind his soft spokenness, just like could not be broken. So, of course, the obvious question is how did you hear of this story and what made you choose to pursue what would become two years of your life to write one story? It's complicated, it's a complicated thing. So the funny part of that question is I promised myself that before this interview I would make up a good story about how I found it because the the, the truth is I don't know. Like I went down a rabbit hole one day on the way. Wow. And I was looking for a story for Epic Magazine. I'll I'll describe what Epic is. Yeah, say say that. So Epic Epic is an important player in this. This is um, a couple of guys who used to be writers at Wired. One of them wrote the story that Argo was based on. Oh, that's a big one. And they decided like – uh, you know, this magazine business has become harder and harder. What we need, you know, their big successes in their careers were 
big long form features that they uh, optioned into movie rights, mm-hmm. and those are the, that's the place they were getting the most attention and making the most money. So was Argo a, uh, an article? It, wasn't it was an article. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. In okay. Wired? Um, maybe not in Wired. These guys so, are really selling. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they decided they'll start a company, basically, and they'll commission these long-form nonfiction mm. pieces. So interesting. As a vehicle to basically sell them to Hollywood. So the original conception of this piece is write it for Epic. They'll put it up on the web. Right. Nobody will see it, probably, but it'll be it'll look like a magazine article. But it web. would be a great. But it'll still you know, yeah. still bring it to so, the agents in Hollywood. So. Every story they commission, they commission with an eye toward this can become a movie. That's the whole deal. Very yeah. smart, actually. And then they take – so they give you basically magazine rates and they and then they split it down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, the better outcome and the one that happened to me was they, they then partner with another magazine. They've done this with Wired. They did it for me with the Texas Monthly. Which is a great magazine. If people don't know Texas Monthly, it's so fantastic good. fantastic um, yeah. magazine I've always admired. Yeah, and, me too. Um, me too. The writing is fantastic. So, uh, yeah, so they partnered with them. So it came out and actually got some attention. It's still number one after two weeks on the, at the Texas Monthly, still number one most That's trending story. Great. I'm very excited about it. Um, and they put it through their editorial process, which made the story even that much better. Mm-hmm. Although, I've got to tell you some stories. Yeah, I, I, stories. I, but it also is helpful that they're Texas. I mean, don't you think maybe yeah. they could fact check sort of cultural touchstones you might not know or, yeah, or recognize? Yeah, or steer me away or, from like some bad, yeah. some, some bad Texas. Yeah, like not realizing. Taking the bull by the horns. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I didn't use that one, but I did But use I can see Texas. it being very helpful as an outsider yeah. to have a, an insider's perspective yeah, I mean, how, on Texas Yeah, I mean, how history. pleased were you when, what, what's the name of the warden? He has, a, it's like Bear Claw or something? Oh, Bear Track. Yeah. That he looked exactly like you would want him to look. He has no chin, he's, a big gut. And he is central casting. Man. Oh, yeah. completely. Actually, a lot of those photos were like that. He, he, and he was the warden that was the most vicious and brutal. And then uh, George Beto, who headed the whole system, was yeah. a more complicated character. Yeah. But, um, Front man. Yeah. So when you write something like this, I assume you start with a ton of research. And from that, you choose what's hap- what you know, what the main point of the story is so how hard was it to find there's so much stuff going on here and i would even argue and i did in the intro that the love story is a nice part of it but it's really not the meat of it yeah so how do you choose how did you find that in this story so uh it's a really good question and and what i began with was at the university of texas uh, driscoll archives briscoe archives is 24 boxes filled with Frances Gillet's papers from her life, right? Interesting. 24 boxes. So, you know, almost enough to you know, cover one of these walls. Oh, yes, easily. I think it would fill all of them. And uh, in there is everything, like, it, basically no order at all. They read, it wasn't a curated archive. Right. It was like phone bills, medical records, prison diaries. And that's where you started? And that's where I started, yeah, with, those, with culling out through those 24 boxes got it down to about 3,500 pages of, uh, of material, which I have in a binder in my office. Bi- seven big binders. I saw the binders. I saw the binders. Yeah. Um, and how long did that take? So that was, uh, that was months of, uh, of research. I, I went down there a little bit, but I also hired a researcher. I was going to ask you, did you have to hire a researcher? She, yeah. she went through and photocopied a lot, and I would talk to her sort of every, every lunchtime and every day so, so to see do, what she was getting. How do you balance your time? I mean, you've got yeah, to keep living, right? I mean, you can't just yeah. dive into this at the cost of everything else in your life. No, no uh, you cannot. And that's what, I, you know, interestingly about you know, going back to the grotto, I think everyone around here, mm-hmm. not everyone, but I'd say, you know, 70% of the writers here are now finding other ways to keep making a living while they're doing their writing. So mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of work with... Um, a group called Attention Span Media, and we do we you know do content creation, story uh, creation, podcasting, um, futurism work for um, some major uh, companies in the sports, health, and food industries. Now, so, to to outside viewers, what that looks like here at the Grotto is Ethan <laughs> and Poe in a room with whiteboards everywhere. Yeah. And the yeah, most with like mad scribbles all Looking over. like FBI agents trying to break up yeah, the mafia. That's during our futurism brainstorming <laughs> sessions where we're trying to tell these co- companies, make a case for what's coming in the future in terms of whatever it might be, AI or, you know, big data or we, oh, we whiteboard the whole thing. But anyway, so I think everyone's doing a little of that there. Mm-hmm. And, it'll, you know, 
it allows you, or for me in this case, it allowed me to take the time with this one piece over a couple of right. years, mm-hmm. as opposed to the other treadmill you get on as a writer, which is doing the, like the 300-word front-of-the-book piece to like get, get the next check to make your monthly rent. You mm-hmm. can kind of do the only the true-to-your-heart work and the stuff you just do to make money. You split those worlds. And, and is it hard when you're in the middle of that to compartmentalize, to jump from one to the other, to go, okay, I'm back in Texas now? Yeah, it's not that hard to do the jump. It's hard to because you're the only person on the Texas team, <laughs> the Texas right. story. Like there's so there's some email that you need to respond to from some client, right? And that always seems a little more mm-hmm. pressing because there's someone waiting for it. Like mm-hmm. there oh, were a couple totally. there were, after I missed my first two deadlines on the <laughs> Texas story for Epic. I don't think they were like holding their breath for like right. when it was going to come in. They're right. like you finish whenever. So it was a matter of like reminding yourself like really in the long term this piece is going to be more important to me than that email I have to respond to right. that executive mm-hmm. at X company. They say what is it that you need to know the difference in time management between what's an emergency and what's important or something like that and I have no ability to yeah. discern those Triage, two things. Yeah. yeah, like I can't remember what the phrase is, but it's something like that and I'm always like I don't know yeah. what's urgent and what's yeah, and essential. That's just, I don't know. It's a real conundrum for, yeah. for writers. So there's, there's a book I would recommend. It. Tell me. It's called Deep Work. Oh. And it's basically just a a great description and um, you know encouraging people to find what they call deep work. And that's that's the work you're talking about, which is like goes beyond just the get things done, check things right. off the list work. It's the immersive. For me, stuff. I just have to go away and disconnect from everything, or I can't seem to do it. Agreed. It's my only way. But you don't do that. You're here every day. Yeah. Yes. So that's amazing. Yeah. So you wrote you. this at the grotto. All at the grotto, yeah. Wow. And uh, can I tell you about the fact-checking part of this? Yes, story? please. Have at it. Because this was one of the most interesting parts because it brought up some questions. I'd never done historical nonfiction before. Mm-hmm. And so I, what the first thing I did is I copied my th- – 3,500 pages of material identically. So I had identical binders that I sent to the fact checker at the Texas Monthly. I annotated this story. And then the, the, the fact checker began to work through it. And um, we immediately came up with questions about what you can and can't do in historical nonfiction. You were saying this about quotes, right? Right. That was, yeah. Right. Whenever I see a quote, you have dialogue. Yes. Right. And that often is, is dialogue that's exactly out of dialogue that's quoted in, I thought, if it was in mm-hmm. his journal. Mm-hmm. And there's one particular scene, the only scene that I had more material than I could need, need was like, there's one fight scene where he gets called out by this guy, clearly set up to get in this fight. Mm-hmm. And there's nine guys that watch it. And they're all uh, deposed within like a week of the incident. So I have nine perspectives oh, on one amazing. instance. That's the only Rush time. Mark. Yeah, it's a Russian one thing. Like, totally. So I got, I got it down to the detail I got out of that one, like down to the 30-30 Winchester rifle that the one guard you mm-hmm. know, was, you know, was told to get. Great. You just feel so blessed when that yeah. happens. But other other times you're dealing with, you know, someone's recollection of a dialogue. The crews would write recollections of dialogue. Frances Gillet kept memos for her file that were just like memories. Like she'd get home the day and she'd type them up of what she learned. Yeah, I'm thinking there was a there was a meeting in an office between her and someone else that had a lot of dialogue in it. I'm trying to remember which it was, but that was the moment when I said, how did he find this? And then, and then so you get the contemporaneous letters were mostly where I got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then people were deposed about these incidents because all these incidents become like part of court cases, right? So you get two sides deposing right. each other. So you get that material. Um, but it is always one question which you hit hit on was kind of when do you reveal to the reader like this is Fred Cruz's memory of what the warden said. That's what I was wondering. And we talked, you know, I talked about that with the, you know, with the fact checker, and we, you know, we made some decisions there. I mean, there were other interesting questions like, I know how Fred Cruz talked, right? Um, because I have the daughters are still alive, and one of the lawyers is still alive, and they described this sort of like this sort of. Uh, mannerisms. Mannerisms. low key and he had a, had a soft voice. Spoke very carefully. But can I, knowing that, can I put that in the first meeting between him and Jalea? Like, right. can I, because I didn't hear him speak during that mm-hmm. time. Right? So that was kind of an interesting question. And then there were just issues like, or there were issues that annoyed the crap out of me with the fact-checking. Like, she drove down from uh, the northeast to Texas and I said she went 
she drove south and west through the August heat in the Midwest from thunderstorms or something like that. And the fact oh. checker's like, do we know what direction? Did she go south, then east, or south, south, then west? And what was the weather like that August? You know, to be like, fair, I would have cared about that. You would have cared about I that? I would have cared, yeah. You mean as I a go, wait a minute, person. she's not going to drive across Idaho and then, or Iowa and then jump well, I didn't say, down. I said and, I didn't say <laughs> then. then. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I find myself doing that quite a bit in my work where I, I'm... Playing a little, playing a trick sounds like too much, but I'll substitute and and for then. Mm-hmm. Just knowing that I can't prove mm-hmm. it was this, then this, but I want them to happen in that order. Right. <laughs> so, I'll, I mean, that's a very specific example. But where I am futzing with those kinds of things to cover myself, um, but I still want to get the information. I really want to have the lunch with T.J. Styles. Yeah, no kidding. Who's oh, one yeah. of our former Grotto members who has uh, done some fantastic historical Pulitzer Prize winning biographer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I want it's to definitely... just pin him to the wall on this stuff because he does this all the time. So and what's important? Yeah, what's important? How do you, and to what extent do you get to inhabit the it, consciousness? Because it's terrifying. Yeah. Because I have twenty-four boxes of material, thirty-five hundred pages of material that's good, but. It's like pulling down a, a, a massive puzzle box from your grandmother's attic, and you're just hoping the pieces are going to be there. Like that scene where they first meet has right. to come alive. Mm-hmm. Right. right? You have to feel right. that you're in the room. Well, and, and you also have a responsibility to the, your characters in that. You know, someone real reads people. it. We're yeah. assuming it's true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you had just mentioned that his. Uh, Children are alive, and some of the lawyers are alive. We're, her children. Her children. I was going to ask, you know, how many living sources did you have who were there? Not, not many. You know, the lawyer that uh, some of the uh, lawyers that worked with her at the time, um, some people that knew her shortly after that, that that had this all in there. But it's amazing. <clears throat> you know, I was interviewing those people. What is you know nearly forty years later, and it's amazing. So I have these contemporaneous letters. Like I have this. One thing where uh, Jalay says, you know, that she took one break, you know, while they're preparing for this trial, and they went to the road, they went to the prison rodeo, mm-hmm. and he, she says she went with this other lawyer who is li- now living over Berkeley, and so I said, so you went, you remember going to the rodeo with Francis Jalay, and he's like, nope, yeah, that doesn't <laughs> surprise remember. me at all, right? Yeah, so yeah. And, and with the daughters as well, like what her. You know, there's even their memory of where their mom was at what point mm-hmm. and what was going on in her life was like. I, I ultimately, the contemporaneous materials, the letters she was sending at the time, and the prison diaries, and the depositions were the thing I trusted the most because four yeah. years later, it's just it's you're not getting For sure. much. And, and how much of of your research was relevant in creating these characters as personalities? Like I have a real clear sense of what Francis seemed like. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that, that that can't just be based on depositions, right? How did you arrive at that? That's a good thing. I mean, the, the, one problem was in getting to that point was reading between the lines of their correspondence, because mm-hmm. as, as I said, it was we went through. They were both very aware this is going through a prison censorship mm-hmm. system, right? And one of the reasons they would spike a letter is if it didn't have something to do with the court. You know, if they if they veered outside this narrow tract of lawyer client subject matter. They would just, you know, the letter would be gone. So you're really, you, you know, you're, so I'm reading like hundreds of pages of this correspondence, and it's really dry. Uh-huh. I mean, it is oh, it yeah. really lost because, stuff because there is lost stuff, and you know, procedural matters, and what to do next, and where, you know, on line 43 of that, you know, you know change this word. It's pretty dry. So, um, but you quote things that are very moving, right? Well, thankfully. A couple of things happened. One is that when things got really hot and things became really dangerous down in Texas, and they really did, um, Frances Gillet felt like she was being followed and, right. and her felt like a phone was tapped. Well, like the steering wheel thing. And the steering wheel, mm-hmm. the steering goes out in her car at one it's point. Like a yeah, Hitchcock movie. I know. That's one of the things that just, there are two things that happen in this story that feel like that only happens in the movie. Right. One is the suspicion that someone tampered with her car and she drove off the road. Two is the turning on the one key character turning oh, yeah. on the stand and reversing his testimony. That was crazy. Never happens in real life. Crazy. I'm guessing, and did in this crazy. case. But yeah, that was dramatic. It is movie material. It's yeah. such movie yeah. material. 
But at any rate, um, going back to your question, so that you're reading between the lines of, of a lot of stuff. And then Frances Chile started to do these um, memos to the file where she was just basically recording for herself what was happening, I think, in case something happened to her because mm. she wanted a documentation for it. And those were brighter and more revealing. And then there are various letters, like letters to friends would be more revealing and letters to her daughters would be even more revealing. And that's She'd be revealing her feelings and her beliefs. And, and, and you can get a sense from the language that she uses, you know, how... If she's a courtly woman, mm-hmm. if she's, you know, mm-hmm. more brash. Yeah. Um, were you worried at all about making sure that the two main characters, Francis and Fred, didn't end up seeming like one-dimensional saints? Um, well, in general, you know, you, find, you get a story like this and you feel a tremendous responsibility to the material to do it mm-hmm. justice. Mm-hmm. And that was just one of the ways I felt like doing it justice you know, these had to be flawed characters, and they, and they indeed were, especially Fred. Um, so doing it justice, yeah, not making them into into saints, not making them into, um, you know, just... Stock characters. Stock characters, mm-hmm. yeah. So that that was gen- gen- generally on the list, but the general category that that's under is like, don't mess this up, don't fuck up the story. <laughs> like, do a good job with the story. It's a once-in-a-lifetime story. Mm-hmm. Like, really be careful. And you're always, you know, as, as a writer, you're always looking for the detail that makes something that just feels real to you. And makes it's often it the detail alive. that doesn't, that, well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit what I thought was going to happen. And it's like, that's that's the thing mm-hmm. that makes the story true and the characters true. A little bit off topic, but similar. What, her, you know, what was her daughter's response? I know, I'm interested in that, too. I know there's one point where they say, you, you, your responsibility is to us. You need to just bag this and come back up here. There's plenty of prisoners who need your help. But she stays the course. Yeah. I was did, fascinated by that. Did they have a 100% positive and supportive attitude about all this work? They do now. When I read that letter to the daughter... I said, you know, this is where one of the places you mm-hmm. come up in the story. I wanted to get your response to that. So this is a letter that Frances gets at the, one of the lowest moments. So this is she'd just gotten fired from her job. She's been barred from the Texas prison. She's filing a court case against her employer and the prison desk system to try to get back to see her clients. She has the flu. It's Christmas time. Mm-hmm. She has She's no away money. from her kids. She's a, this is like yeah, a low awful. moment. Like this is like one of the, And she gets this letter from her daughter saying... We really need you back home. You know, your responsibility is also to us. <clears throat> I read that letter to the daughter, and the daughter was kind of devastated because. You but know, she said that. But she had said that. But you know, even as I read that, yeah. I was thinking that's such a young woman's. Yeah, she's thing. going through. Said, she's just new in the world, but, and she needs her mom. Nearby. Right. It's, yeah. like, it's like what? I mean, I can see myself being that way. That's with my what I was mom. say. Everyone Completely. in this room is a parent. Yeah. Right. If you get that letter from your kid, what do you do? Yeah. I remember once saying to my mom. Um, who's had nine children, like super giving, self-sacrificing person. <laughs> you care more about a bunch of old ladies than you do about me because she was not stopping everything to do something for me. Right. And I think back about that. She's like, <laughs> right, exactly. I'm just saving you? prisoners, you know, whatever. Um, so I think <clears throat> that from the mother's perspective, it's both devastating and understandable. Like I think yeah. moms that she could see, I mean, it would still be devastating. You know your kids need you, and she's yeah. saying she needs you, but to also know, like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, to answer your question, like, I, I bail out and go home. Me too. Yeah. So, which speaks to, like... I don't know that you would, you guys. Other well, people's it, lives it, are on the line. Well, that's true. I don't do work where other people's <laughs> lives are on the line. <laughs> that's true. You know, so this guy absolutely needs you. Depends on how convincing my kid was. And also, you've given your life for them. Tell that. You, tell now. I don't know. Done. I don't know uh, what the yeah. answer is, but... Um, it's also a very interesting time for women, and you know the women's liberation movement is really happening right at that time. And Absolutely, it's a time of real conflict for women, especially women like her who gave up everything, including her education, right. to be a good mother and raise her kids the way she was supposed to. So, yeah, it's crazy. That, the, uh, that's the other reason I, I love this time that her character because yeah. she was, and she it wasn't just getting into law school or you know getting you know past the Texas bar. It was any place she. Any courtroom, any deposition she walked into, she was the right. woman lawyer that no one knew what to make of. And right. she had to prove herself over and over again. She wasn't even a litigator. Like, she's doing this crazy stuff. And it seems like, to sort of piggyback on what we were talking about earlier, like, her personality wasn't Mm-mm. pushy Mm-mm. and forceful. She was pretty mannered. She was she was a, a very courtly mannered yeah. woman. Um 
but it's like it's like that old. I, I don't really know if I've ever met this character, but I imagine them as the old East Coast character where behind that manner, mannerliness steely. is kind of like steely. I was yeah. like the it's core kind of, of steel. It's kind of a Protestant work ethic. I mean, she yeah. had an amazing work ethic. Right. And she just didn't. And she just didn't admire people that didn't have that work ethic and mm. didn't stick the course and didn't follow through on their commitments. She just. So she was. Pre- she was both um, very gracious and lovely and and. And just had a backbone of steel. I mean, he did too, kind of, right? Like, I mean, he had yeah. this core yeah. that yeah. was unshakable. Yeah. It's amazing. Speaking of people staying the course, was it, what was the lowest point during... I imagine there had to be days when you were overwhelmed. Oh, my God. Yes. And I remember one in particular, and this is go, again goes back to the value of the grotto. I actually tweeted out a picture not too long ago of this. Um, I'll pin it on my, twi- uh, my Twitter feed so you can see it. But... Um, it was the whiteboard, and it was one day, and, I, I just, and as I've often done over the course of my career with my books and articles and so forth, I turned to Poe uh, Bronson, and I said, I'm a little lost. Can I talk you through this story? So we went into one of the conference rooms, pulled out the whiteboard, and we, and we were just like, scene one, you know, put it mm-hmm. on the whiteboard. And then he, he did it like a movie, so you have to like literally you see these canyons and rise points and the, the low point and the up, and the, you know, the... What do you call it at the end of a movie? The epilogue sort of moment. Resolution. Resolution. Um, and he, did, he took, and so that was, you know, four hours later, I could see it. Mm-hmm. I could see it like, oh yeah, I just have to get. I'm here, and I just now I'm going up here. Yeah, choosing the structure is oof, was so. It's so big, but it's not big enough to make it uh, yeah. where like a book where you could say, I'm just going to handle all this this way because mm-hmm. I have all this time to do it. I'm still tell compressed. You, I made the mis- I made a decision that I tell every one of my students not to do. What was I, it? I almost always say, don't go chronologically. I know. I wondered about that because do not do chronologically. It's funny you say that because when I got to the end, I thought, I wonder why he went chronological. It's almost always a mistake. I have that thought. Like when you hit writer's block and you're growing chronologically, you, that's the reason usually. Right. You're just like, oh, you know, I'm on like year one. I got to get through five years. I don't know what and happens like, next. And I just got to, yeah, or it's the next detail. Like you gotta right. Take, How do I get them from here to there yeah. when I got to go chronological? You got to take control of time. And oftentimes that means, you know, moving things around, starting places, starting at, right. at, the, at a midpoint and working, going back and telling the backstory and then getting back to the midpoint and going forward. It's much more, the reader has a lot more respect for the narrator who has control of time. And in, yes. in my case, having control of time just meant like at some points I had to speed it, like I had to do like a six months in a paragraph so that the reader knows like, I'm not just going to give you right. any detail I found mm-hmm. out like the next day and the next day, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the but, problem with chronological is then, 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 then this, then this, then this. But it's also the problem of uh, when you, the risk of chronological is always backing up. Yeah. Until you're starting in an insane place, right? Um, so it's hard. Yeah. So I, if I thought about it again, I might, you know, and, I, and then I had the the big question was whether to start with Francis or um, mm-hmm. or Fred, and I thought in some ways like Fred is a more dramatic character, you know, like he's being brutalized in prison, but you've seen that before, right? You've right. seen that. You've watched Shawshank Redemption, right? You know what that's about. You don't know Francine, Francis Gillet because she's a unique mm-hmm. character living in a unique time. Mm-hmm. Right. You've seen her less. And, and was there any um, urge to just focus solely on her? Like, this is Francis Gillet, and here are all the prisoners that came in contact with her during her fantastic life. That's a good question. Um, that is a good question, except that it's very clear that they became a partner. partner. Mm. And in fact, like, when you, they're, they're stuff going back and forth. Francis is teaching Fred a lot about the law, but there are things that she doesn't know about the prison system and about the, about criminal law that he knows and he's teaching her. And, and they really were partners in terms of producing those lawsuits. It was not... Wow, that's so interesting. He wasn't just one of many. <clears throat> and how did their correspondence differ from her correspondence with the other prisoners you mentioned? Well, the other... Yeah, so... The guys with the sliced-up Achilles tendons. Yeah, the guys. Well, there was there was one that was you know um, delusional and pro- right. probably schizophrenic, and a lot of those letters were you know um, you know they were they were more motherly let- mm. letters. They were more um, and they were more hand-holding letters. Um, yeah, so you know, she had different the, tones with different prisoners for sure. One of the details that I found really chilling was when they were being medicated, forcibly medicated. Like yike. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, they tried everything on those yeah, guys. Yeah, it's yike. Yeah, that is actually, you know, how almost all your pieces or your next books come from some right. bit of detail right. that you didn't. Right. So that was the detail in this one because yeah, I, I can learned. See why. I learned a little later as I was doing the fact checking process actually that the wind unit had this partnership with Baylor University, oh. and when they rolled out things like Thorazine, they took it to the wind unit to try Makes them out. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I thought, well, there's a story I haven't heard. Like, how? Like, what documentation is out there on that? I'm giving away the story I'm about to go well, off. Well, but also but, one of the things you said in that section, I thought, yeah, that's something to think about, that so many people, like Fred, who are incarcerated, have ad- issues with addiction, and here they are being given drugs. Right. In the one place where they could be clean, right? Um, it's pretty brutal, and, right? And it's the one way that Fred Fred managed for a time in his life to right. to get clean because right. I don't want yeah. to I mean, the ending. Yeah, is, is it as simple for for people running these prisons? Is it as simple as them seeing prisoners as beyond redemption and something that just needs to be controlled? Sort of subhumans, like all right, it doesn't matter what we do to them. The idea is here: keep them under control, keep them warehouse, keep them under control. Or is it they felt punish them? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the prison people that uh, run prisons and people that fund them, there is always the, the fundamental issue of rehabilitation over punishment. Right. And of course, the long-term gain for society is rehabilitation. And but it's not as satisfying. It's not as satisfying for people, and people want them to be punished. And mm-hmm. It's harder, too. Yeah. It's a harder mm-hmm. thing to imagine. And, and outcomes uncertain. And it's more expensive mm-hmm. right. in the short run. Is it run. more expensive? In the short run. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to give George Beto, the head of the TDC, credit, like he was doing a lot of things where he was trying to get prisoners to get their GEDs. A lot of these benefits went to white prisoners, mm-hmm. uh, not to black or Latino prisoners. Um, but he was trying to do, you know... Um, Educate them in various ways. Um, the sad thing about it, one of the, one of the things that they challenged in this whole thing was the what was called the building tender system. And this, these oh, yeah. prisons were basically run by what were called building tenders. They were prisoners that were given some um, some benefits and some authority, and they held control over the cell blocks to the point right. where they could fire a low level guard. You know, one, oh, of them wow. poured, one of them poured you know lighter fluid on a low level guard and lit them on fire, and it was still a building tender. Like these guys were thugs, wow. and they controlled these units in a way like you could you could have like fifteen guards guarding like fifteen fifteen hundred prisoners, and you have you know a few dozen building tenders like keep like and, enforcing the law and all free. And they and were no free. Cost. No cost. So that was a huge cost saving. I know. He was famous thing. for being a cost, yeah. cost yeah. effective. Cost effective. Yeah. The sad thing, they challenged that system and it's now gone out of favor um, because it was just an illegitimate way. To, but yes. it left a power vacuum within the Texas prisons right. into which gangs have thrown. Right, so, right, right, right. It's problematic for sure, the whole thing. <laughs> the, the sad thing about the whole arc of Texas prisons is that they challenged the Department of Corrections, all these constitutional issues, eventually won their cases, and things basically got worse in a different way. Right. Yeah. They just, right. you know, like after that, there was the huge influx of drug, drugs, low-level drug crimes. So the prisons expanded. They privatized. They got mm. filled with gangs. I mean, it's it's not like... And then everything was good after... Right. Have you ever read, Francis. either of you, I, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of the book. I think it's called New Jack City by Ted Conover. There was a that? movie called New Jack City. Maybe I'm, I might be mixing up the movie yeah. with the book. So there's a book by Ted Conover that's about him. It's like immersive journalism where he goes, he becomes a guard in a prison mm. for, I think, two years. And then he wrote about... And for the Mother John's writer? He just, they just did one. No, this was, this was like right. maybe 2008, 2007. Right. It's a fantastic book because what it, what it really shows, like he goes in as a writer. Like he's intending, yeah. he doesn't tell them. It's, he's... He does the training. He comes in as a guard. He's making money as a guard, but he's planning to write about it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. And he becomes a brutal guy. Right. Right. Like I mean, he becomes because of the, that person. The expectations in, in right, and he is afraid are... of the prisoners, and he is pissed off. Right. And they do things that make him very angry. And I mean, just to see like those people on the other side are also getting dehumanized. Basically, you sure this wasn't the Mother Jones writer that did this? Because you're just well, this is an old book. Old Ted book. Conover, isn't that his name? I don't know. I'm trying to look. It up oh right yeah, look now. it up. Because there's a new one that's uh, a Mother Jones writer did the exact same thing you're describing in a 
uh, privatized prison somewhere in the south. No, this was in the East Coast. It was called New Jack, guarding Sing Sing. Oh, it was close. New Jack City, New Jack. Not bad. 2000. Anyway, Ted, 2000, long time ago. Anyway, it's a really good book, and it really opened my eyes. Well, first of all, it's really well written, but it really opened my eyes to, it's easy to say, like, oh, these guys are just assholes, but they are Mm. facing, like, people are throwing shit on you. Well, it's hard to to dehumanize people without losing some of your humanity yourself. Well, very well said. That's the summation of the book, Mm -hmm. because my takeaway. But it was brutal. It's a brutal book. I mean, just to see inside the prison. So it it sounds like, you know, you've carved out a career doing a lot of things with mental health and psych- psychology, psychiatry. And you just said this was the story of a lifetime. Is this going to branch off into look a new interest in, in things to cover? Yes. Sounds like it. Good question. I, I, I did have moments. You, talk, you ask about the low point, but you know, the high points were, um, you know, it appeals. I, I like to, I'm, I'm a gold painter. I, I like to play poker. I'm like a gambler at heart. Like the idea, I like <laughs> things that are like not would have guessed that. <laughs> like the idea of like really? discovering something like yeah. falling into and 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 it really is like gold panning. This going through these documents and you get yeah. this one great detail, you know, in this one letter to a friend in 1963, mm-hmm. and uh, it's so enjoyable. You can, you can just get into it and turn a page and get another great detail, and you're hoping that you'll get the details you need. Um, really satisfying work, i got to say. So I've always promised myself that the next book I write is a book I'll want to, I, w- I would want to read, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you think would always be the case, right? You would except, think. Except that you know, some of the books I've written have been intellectual journeys that I've wanted to go on, but not necessarily the book right. I pick up right. to be like, I got it. I'm really looking forward to yeah. that book. Yeah. <laughs> it's an it's the idea porn book that I write. It's like here's a new way of thinking about all some you know, you know, mental health around the world. And it was fun for me to write, but it would not necessarily be the book that I would be drawn to. I gotta read that next Eric Larson book because he's such yeah. a good writer. Yeah. So I felt like this was my seventeen thousand word tryout for historical nonfiction, and I liked it. Yeah. And, and what made it not be a book? Good question. Yeah. Um, it, it could have been. I just, I, I really like that idea of, I mean, 17,000 words felt, you know, they assigned it at 12. I got, you know, ended up with 17. It felt like I told the whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I felt like I just want this as my you know, my test run at doing mm-hmm. this form of journalism. And, and <clears throat> I feel like I, my learning curve sort of hit a, hit its steepest angle and flattened out with the story. And if I if I kept going at this one story, I feel like my learning curve would remain kind of flat. So, get in, you know, find another story where it's another time period and another set of documentation and a different different archive and a different learning curve. And, and how, do you, how do you feel about a story taking up that much of your life? Well, financially speaking, yeah. is one issue, uh, but yeah. you know, and you can imagine like that. You know, it was definitely um, you know having to talk, to, you know, explain it to my wife. Right. Um, right. But I mean, it's definitely the sort of thing that I didn't want to let it go. Like I, I could have kept working on the story. It's I so didn't, cool. I didn't want to let, let it go. It, you know, they become like they're not like friends, but they're like characters you know really deeply. And, and you want to know what happens next at some yeah. point. I mean, I find that with historical stories. Like, yeah. what is going to happen? Yeah. I have a practical question. So you have 20-some boxes of stuff. How do you track these, like, little nuggets of gold that you find over all these boxes and then be able to find that nugget again and know where it came from and what it is? And So you know this, this page punch where you punch it and it turns the, the dial and you, you get page one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, page, yeah. yeah. So I bought one of those because I had 35... Oh. Hundred pages to to uh, to so I yeah. numbered every page, and every page comes with uh, you know like oh. it's it's you know binder one page hundred and eight, oh, so and then I made an enormous index of because it could you know a lot I of need things. Need to look at this. Can I take a picture of it for myself? So, I'm not going to publicize it. What'd you do with it all? So then you create you know the, the key beats of the story, or there's right. that time when they meet. There's and that then time. so then you're like, oh yeah, there was that so, thing, and I want to go back right. and find it. So you you're, can find it. you're basically putting together all your index numbers to to triangulate all your sources. So a deposition three years later, she mentions the first day she met him, the contemporaneous letter, that prison oh, diary. And they're all in different places in your binder, but if right. you begin to make your index, you begin to clump them together. 
here's the thing you shouldn't do. Hey, tell me. <laughs> I'm sure I've already so, done it. It was in a Google Doc I was working mostly, but then sometimes I transfer it to a Word file to share it with an oh. editor, and then I transfer it back and I transfer it forward. Yeah. And the things that don't transfer well is the goddamn footnotes. So by the time I have a full draft, almost all my footnotes are gone. So I have to go back page by page. Wait, you used footnotes instead of endnotes? Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, just for just for yeah. fact checking. No, no, I understand. Yeah. But still, that I, that's that, the one reason. That the well, it just makes it harder. I would just would think it was harder. Oh, were you yeah. David Foster Wallace? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, idiot David Foster Wallace. He like writes right. the footnotes and loses the idiot version. Because the idiot I find version. I find just oh. managing all the material really overwhelming. Like I can't come up with a good system a lot I of the time. No way. Could and I go back over things a million times. Like I'll think there was a detail that I remember, but where was it? Yeah. And like you I, know what, I can't find it again. You know what's become pretty good about this and we should have more discussions at the grotto about this yeah. sort of technology but evernote oh, where, that's a good idea know, so even yeah. i imported um basically these pdf files evernote uh software recognition or handwriting recognition has become so good i could word search it no it, for way. most things it would come up with the, the thing i needed like um some handwriting didn't quite work. Some typewriting didn't quite work. That's so the, interesting. It yeah. never occurred to me that that was possible. So I had all the things in Evernote, um, and then I had all things in my actual file. But I actually, at one point, I remember, okay, so the moment where she drives off the road and the car goes out, and I remember reading that when it was, came in, you know, as one yeah. of the things that the uh, my researcher had found. I was like, oh, thank God, put it in the file. Yeah, and awesome. then I was, And then I was like, it was gone. Yes, actually, this is re- what happens to me. I actually rehired the researcher. I said, you got to help me. I know this detail's in here. Yeah. Could, could I pay you for another couple of days to go back yeah. through the files? And, and she went back through and found it. And it happened oh because it was, it was in a letter she had written to a historian when she was – so I had it in the 1976 file – even though it, it just, happened in 1968, yeah. and I just had forgotten that that's where it was, and she found it because it was like, yeah, oh, that's yeah. oh, but God, that's so that good. Oh, yikes! I'm just, you know, I'm just <laughs> sitting here thinking. I'm working on a YA novel right now, and after about the third chapter, when I mentioned the school the kids went to, and I just have to say name of school because I'd forgotten the name of the right, school. Right, right. So I can't even imagine going back and. and what I hate is like. I'll have this glimmer of something that I find interesting and I'll go back to my notes and realize that that wasn't the thing I thought was interesting when I was taking the notes or when I was doing the thing. So I didn't pull it aside, but now I've I've fixated on it and I have to basically start from the beginning to find it again because it wasn't of interest to me until I got farther along in the story. So you realize the themes of your thing you created. It takes so long. We're starting to run out of time here, so I want to know one one key question. How did you know when you were done? Um, that's a good question because it went through. So I had multiple editors. Again, Power of the Grotto, Daniel Levin Becker, uh, Poe Bronson, uh, my friend Alan Burdick at The New Yorker, who's now The Times, read it. Multiple people so um, good. You know, weighed in on it. Todd Oppenheimer took a read. Uh, Laura Fraser took a read. Um, so you don't do that all at once, of course. You get to a point where you're like, I'm kind of, I'm either stuck or I'm kind of at a completed draft. And then you give it to one trusted reader, not two, one. You use them up, and then you get to the next, <laughs> next sort of like, I feel like now I'm completed again, or I'm stuck. Give it to the next trusted reader. Mm-hmm. Do that a couple of times, um, and then you feel like, yeah, now I'm done. And, and honestly, going back to that learning curve issue. I think this is true with a lot of my writing. I'm not going for perfection. I'm going for like a really good result where my learning curve is just leveled, leveled off. Like then I'm like it's good enough. Like it's not perfection. But I'm going to send it in now. I'm going to send it in now because I'm I'm kind of done with what I can learn from this story. And are you now that you're done? Are you mourning it? I'm tweeting about it? Does that count? <laughs> no, uh, no. I mean, yeah. it's been a part of your life for two years. I still feel like I have, you know, to have this conversation with the world now, and it has been lovely. Right. Uh, the response has been lovely. And you look forward to having the conversation. This conversation here is, is really, a, honestly, a high point for feeling like completion. <laughs> um, and I expect that conversation to go on a little longer because there's this, you know, they're now sending it out to, like, you named the famous Hollywood actress. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this yeah. is such a good and movie vehicle. She has been at least gotten an email about the story. So, um, wow. And I've had, like, 
six, as of today, six production companies reach out to me oh, personally. Wow. I'm thinking yeah. Julianne they, Moore. That's who I would people. think. I mean, of course yeah. you'd say Meryl Streep, but I'm thinking Julianne Moore just for that sort of patrician. Yeah. <laughs> Out of East Coast. I can see it. From your sure. mouth to God's ear. I know, completely. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. I, I'm big. really, it, you know, the, the, I guess the deal is like selling the option is not that difficult, but um, getting the pieces together and that requires the star and the producer and the. And they have something actually be made of it. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have you back in here to explain something that's a, a writer's secret to getting something optioned versus getting it actually made. Yeah. Is quite different, right? That's, the, That's I mean, a magical it, process. No one really knows. And the amount of money <laughs> you get like, from one to the other, yeah, is yeah, a factor of a hundred. Um, but you know, it is something that writers should be thinking about when they're writing sure. story-based thing. It's like, why not get this option as a movie? Like, yeah, sell the rights, get an agent. And are you eager to jump into another two-year story now? I, it sounds like you got a couple things in the works. I, you know. Um, I, I have the one thing I want to look at. It's nice to have a little string that's left over, mm-hmm. the, the, the wind unit and the drug drug testing. Like I'll pull that string a little bit at some point. Um, but I would, you know, I would love it if I could find a nonfiction book, preferably about gold mining in the Sierras. That would just something that would get me to go there. Yeah, somewhere, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to bring me into the world. Yeah, like, I can yeah. see I can totally see that. Are you talking gold mining during the gold rush or gold mining now? Well, could be gold mining now. You know, it's a good story. Is there a lot but of I really do like the way historical nonfiction just sits there waiting for you to discover it. Like mm-hmm. you're not I do too. hoping you're not following a guy around hoping something really interesting is going to happen like you do with contemporaneous reporting or you're not like following the latest trend in science where you like how to figure this out and explain it. You're just like, it just sits there waiting for you to peel back a layer. I have a story for you. I'm going to tell you when the mics are on. <laughs> well, it is, um, it is time to turn the mics off. And I'm really sorry because there was a lot of other things other than that, uh, other than this particular story that we wanted to talk to you about. But next always, time. Come back next week. Yeah, next time. Let's do it. We know where to meet. I love it. Uh, but before we go, so Ethan, tell people where they can find the story, starting with your Twitter handle. So my Twitter handle is Ethan Waters with two T's, and then the number one. So Ethan Waters one, as opposed to Ethan, Ethan Waters, Waters two through is fifteen, a, is a lovely young guy in Australia. He he's doesn't a, want he's to hear from people. And yeah. in, his, in his Twitter bio, it is I'm Ethan Waters, not the journalist. <laughs> so you'll know it's not him. But Ethan Waters one, I would. One thing I do want to say is just so you know about writers, any listeners out there. The, the, you know, getting a response from a reader is so important, mm-hmm. and having someone retweet, retweet retweet your story and share mm-hmm. it is the most lovely thing you could mm-hmm. do. So, if you would, if you want to be a partner with a writer, reach out to them, um, give them your thoughts about a story, share it with your friends. It's a big deal. And I well follow said. Ethan on Twitter, so I can say with confidence that he will notice if you retweet his uh, story. Yeah, I will like you and follow you, and <laughs> pro- probably send you a personal message. Um, oh, so well, that's, there you go, people. Yeah. And then you can find the story. The story will live hopefully forever, the Texas Monthly. Texas Monthly. Yeah. Such a good magazine, too. Just can't say it enough. It really is. You know, there's so many city and, and you know, regional magazines like that. And that one, oh, it's the best it, they're playing a different ball game than the yep. other ones. Can I give you guys a, some props just as the last beat, which is that uh, you're doing the Grotto Pod and sharing this out with people. I, I'm so proud of the things people do at the Grotto and the fact that this happened out of your initiative and um, brings people like people get to know each other better here and mm-hmm. I'm just so proud of it so thank you guys for doing it and, and certainly thank you for having me on thanks oh my goodness that was lovely BQ what say you I say um, first where can we find you I know it's been I difficult know. for me for the last couple months <laughs> I know. well first of all I'm like Bridget Quinn 50 so my <laughs> Twitter handle is at bequinterest that's a little joke right in words yeah uh-huh. And it's also my Instagram handle, but you can also find me at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. Weirdly enough, Ethan does not have a website. I know. No. What's, what's up with that, dude? Old school, man. I thought about doing it, but I haven't. <laughs> As for me, you can find me, that Larry Rosen, because there are lots of us. There's actually a bunch of Larry Rosen writers. Yeah, I know. Sorry, baby. It's, it's, a, crowded, that Larry Rosen. it's a crowded world of Larry Rosens. That's why I'm that Larry Rosen Correct. on Twitter and Instagram. I do not have a website either, unless, of course, you're a fan of my other podcasts. Then you go to isitgoodforthejews.com, and that's where you can find me. Who produces this here, Grotto Pod? 
I'm glad you asked. It's Beth Weingarner, Lee Kravitz, and Lori Ann Doyle. Thank you Thank to you them. them. If you want to contact the Grotto Pod, you can go to Instagram or Twitter at the Grotto Pod. You can email us at grottopod at gmail.com. We also love retweets. We do we love, love that. Who sponsors the Grotto Pod? And why isn't there a major corporate sponsor? There should there be. Not. We have partners. We have partners, oh, yes. And our partners that? are, we're going to, oh, our sorry. partners are all at the San Francisco <laughs> Public Library and Babylon Salon, San Francisco's premier reading series. Next, uh, I think December 1st is the next edition and of Beth Babylon Weingarner Salon. And Beth is going to be there. Our own Beth Weingarner. And also Vanessa Wah, I believe. I believe you're correct. I think there's nothing more to say, but there I think not. you disagree. Well, there's just this. Be like Ethan, read, write, and just keep working. 